BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What time is it going to rain at my house? Meteorologists get that type of question all of the time. And since meteorology is such a tricky science, it is near impossible to answer that question for everyone that asks. However, my next guest is working on a weather engine that can answer the question automatically. Dr. Luke Peffers is the Senior Vice President of Climacell, a Boston-based company with a big vision. They want to map all of the weather data in the world to provide precise global coverage. They call it micro-weather, and it can be a total game-changer. Dr. Peffers, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very familiar with Climacell. We've actually had uh, some of your colleagues on the television version of the show, so I'm glad to be able to talk to you again. We're going to dive into this concept of micro weather and precision forecast. And can you tell me if it's going to rain in the back corner of my lot near the dog bowl by the tomato plant? Because as meteorologists, you know that we get those kind of questions. But as normal, for those that listen to Weather Geeks, you know the question that's coming next, Luke. I always like to know from my guests, how did you get into meteorology? Yeah, so my story isn't as traditional as a lot of Weather Geeks. Um, I wasn't passionate about the weather when I was a kid. I was afraid of it. Um, we grew up in Colorado, where, you know, eastern Colorado, we had a lot of tornadoes, and I always feared it. But I never... Um, really desired to study it until I was in the the military. So I joined the, the United States Air Force, and um, I was a vehicle mechanic. And I knew that I wanted to do something better, something different, something where I could um, use my brain a little more. And so I applied to a, a commissioning program where the Air Force would send me to college, and I would come out as a commissioned officer. And so that's what I did. And in doing so, because the Air Force is paying for it, they they only they give you options of degrees that you can focus on that they're willing to pay for. And at the time, around 2002 or so, the Air Force was interested in electrical engineers and meteorologists. So I had to choose between those two. I knew nothing about either one except for meteorology. I knew that I could see clouds and I can I experienced the weather in my life, so I chose that <laughs> one. And so, yeah, they sent me to um, start my undergrad at Emory-Riddle Aeronautical University in Florida, and I fell in love with it. I just absolutely loved studying the weather. I loved academics. I loved all the math that went into it, and I just fell in love. And I ended up turning down the Air Force scholarship, um, and I met my wife my wife along the way, and we decided to just pursue our PhDs, and that's, that's how it happened. It was uh, a lot of luck, a lot of coincidence, and... I, I found passion kind of late in my life in terms of, you know, what I want to study and what I want to do for a career. Well, that's 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 certainly a different story from many that we hear about on Weather <laughs> Geeks who had this passion since elementary school. Let me give you a little bit of uh, Dr. Peffer's background. He worked as an active duty uh, member of the Air Force for five years. Uh, as you heard, he did his uh, undergraduate work at Embry-Riddle there in Florida. I, I wonder if you uh, interacted any with my uh, classmate, Dr. Chris Herbster, while there. Uh, and then it looks he like... 
my advisor. Oh, he was yeah, your advisor. He, okay. So I, I suspected you probably crossed paths. And then you did your PhD at Florida State University in meteorology. I'm a three-time uh, alum of that department as well. So we certainly have some things in common. You spent uh, seven years as a meteorologist for the Air Force Technical Applications Center and was chief scientist at Science and Technology and Atmospheric Research, LLC. All of this before joining Climacell, which is an emerging company. Uh, why don't you at this point, before we really dive into some of the really cool things you're doing at Climacell, tell us a little bit about what Climacell is. A little bit about Climacell. Yeah, so Climacell is a lot different than what I've done uh, in my past career. I've, I've worked specifically for the government. You know, my master's and my PhD were both funded by the U.S. Air Force. I'm at STAR. I was a government contractor doing, you know, chemical, biological, nuclear forensics. So a lot of classified work, classified applications of weather. And it was really exciting. And at STAR, I started to reach out to the private sector and kind of branch away from the government to, to kind of diversify our portfolio. And that's where I met Climacell. And Climacell is different. It's it's not a government agency. Um, they're, they're focused on, on, you know, as you said, micro weather. It, it's something that's, that's different. We're, we're not focusing on you know, large regions of the globe. We're not doing global weather. Um, we're, we're, we're doing global weather, but we're not focused on general global weather. We're focused on micro weather around the globe. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting. It's, it's much more exciting to, to focus on, you know, the, the, the number of, 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 of downstream users of climate cells data are, are endless. It's everybody in the world. Everybody is affected by weather. In the government, you know, I, I focused only on chembionuclear forensics. There's a, a very small subset of people that that affects. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, um, in, in, in terms of what climate cell is in general, um, for me, it, it's, it's a very exciting challenge um, to, to, to be able to, to do microweather in a way that we can affect or we can provide useful information for anybody in the world. Now, as much as you can say, and I know that this is often um, tricky or challenging for a, a, a new private company, but uh, I mean, who are some of the people that want this kind of information, this sort of microweather information that you're providing? Yeah. So, you know, some of our customers are like airlines, like um, Delta, we have Ford Motor Company. We've got a lot of big players. Um, also, you know, the uh, the New England Patriots are, 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 are one of our customers. And those are those are a little bit larger, larger customers. Right. But they have very specific needs. They have needs for for weather in and around the airport. So they know when they can take off, when, when they have to de-ice, when they can land and things like that. So they're, they're large companies, but they have very focused points of interest. Um, so, so some of our other customers are in the the. Re, Renewables, for example. So we have customers with a wind farm somewhere in the world. Let's just say Texas. There's a lot of wind farms in Texas. Um, we have solar solar energy folks that are interested in when a cloud's going to come over and cast a shadow over their over their solar panel. So we're we're, we're focusing on, on on large customers, but with very localized needs. Whether it's a wind farm, a solar panel, or an airport, or or, or a stadium. Yeah, no, I, that, I think that one of the things that I'm watching is someone that has been in the the weather enterprise or weather community for many years. Uh, when I started, when I was at Florida State as an undergraduate, I mean, most of the jobs with the National Weather Service are on TV, and there were a couple of sort of private companies out there doing weather as well. But now there, there's a generation of companies that really are doing this more precision weather, which you all are focused on. Focused on. So this past spring, I know Climacell got into the numerical weather prediction game, and I, I know that you've been leading that. Uh, the, the listeners of Weather Geeks are quite varied. We have meteorologists that listen, but we have just people curious about the weather as well. So before I really dive into what 
you all are doing with numerical weather prediction. Why don't you give the listeners a 101 of what numerical weather prediction is? Because this is a question I find that when I ask the public, how do you get your weather forecast? How is it done? A lot of people don't immediately think computer models. So talk about what NWP is. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe before I do that, I'll, I'll talk about what it isn't just to kind of uh, set the stage. What uh, A lot of what ClimateCell has done in the past is focused on current conditions. What is happening in the weather right now um, at, at a very granular scale? And to do that, you need a lot of data. It's purely data-driven. What's, you know, we have samplers out there, we have virtual sensors, we have the weather of things, and we're, we're monitoring the atmosphere. And we plot that in a way that the customers can understand what is happening right now. A lot of customers want to happen or want to know, okay, this is what's happening now. What if I want to go to the park with my kids? What's going to be happening in an hour from now? So for that, we, we deploy now casting. And now casting is, is a pretty general term. Um, but for, for us, what now casting means is we take the observations, the, the current state of the, the atmosphere that we know right now, and we propagate it forward in time um, with, with some with, with, with some assumptions. The assumptions are that things aren't going to change drastically. If we have a thunderstorm in, in, in one area and it's moving eastward, we can assume that it's going to continue moving eastward at a certain pace and that it might decay or it might grow. So now casting is taking those observations and projecting them into the very near future. And as I mentioned, we make assumptions that things aren't going to change a lot. But we all know that things do change a lot in the weather. You can look out at a beautiful thunderstorm looking over, you know, we're here in Boulder and we look out east and we see all these thunderstorms, especially in the summertime, um, that are blowing up over over the, the, the eastern, you know, the eastern portion of, the, of, of Colorado. And you can look out the window 20 minutes later and that thing's completely gone or it's blown up into a massive, um, massive system. So things do change and we, we know that. And to account for that, we have to... You know, there, 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 there's a whole slew of equations. There's these, these equations that represent momentum and momentum fluxes and uh, energy coming from the sun and hit, you know, warming the ground and creating buoyant plumes. And there's, there's a tremendous amount of fluid dynamics and thermodynamics that are involved in what causes the weather. And to truly predict what's going to happen into the future um, and account for all those complexities, you know, the fact that a thunderstorm doesn't just keep on moving east for a month, it's going to die and decay and it's, it's, it's um, cold pools as it's, as it's decaying are going to possibly create new thunderstorms. You know, that kind of stuff, you can't make simplified assumptions. You have to model the atmosphere. You have to, so yeah, yeah, you have to use these equations to, to model the atmosphere. And these equations, um, you have to basically divide the atmosphere up into many, many grid points. And at each grid point, you have a set of equations. They're all the same set of equations, but they all feed off of each other. So this is dynamics. You know, uh, If you look at one grid point, um, the winds may be blowing from east to west. And the next grid point, the winds might be blowing a little bit slower, so you have convergence. Um, but when you look at a three-dimensional volume of, of atmosphere, there's a lot of interactions, a lot of extremely complex interactions that are happening. And numerical weather prediction is just that. The, the, the numerics is those equations that I talked about, the Navier-Stokes equations, fluid dynamics equations, and thermodynamics equations. We cast those onto this grid. We discretize them onto this, this grid that rep represents the 3D volume of, of atmosphere. And we calculate. We calculate what's happening at the next time step. And that feeds into the next time step. And that feeds into the next time step. And that's how we march into the future. Um, each time step is, is dependent on the previous time step. So we run these on massive supercomputers. And a lot of times for very big simulations, if we're modeling a large region of the world, it requires thousands of CPU cores. So picture you know, thousands of, of, of laptops stacked on top of each other that are running a single forecast. And it's, it's intense because if, if you imagine you know, the, the, the amount of atmosphere that's sitting over the, the continental 
United States. And right now we have, you know, the, the NCEP runs the, the HER model, high resolution rapid refresh model, at three kilometer resolution up to, you know, 40, 50 kilometers high. And if you divide the atmosphere up by three kilometer segments um, across the entire U.S., it's a lot of grid points. It's millions and millions of grid points. And you have to calculate those equations at every single grid point at every model time step. And model time steps are on the order of seconds. So if we want to do a 36-hour forecast or a five-day forecast, that's a lot of calculations. And um, it, it, it requires massive um, high-performance computing. And just recently, you know, co computing power is getting cheaper, it's getting more efficient, and we're running things in the cloud. And it, it's getting to the point where private companies can actually run their own weather models. Now, not, not a lot of people are doing it because it does take a lot of experience, a lot of investment. Um, but it, it, it's something that, that Climacell sees as, as an advantage, and it's something that our customers want. Um, you know, Climacell is three years old now, and a lot of the customers before this NWP division was here, they were solely um, receiving the current conditions and the now casting. And a lot of those customers love that micro weather. They love that, that the fact that they can get a thunderstorm prediction for a stadium or for their wind farm or for their, their, their event outside. But a lot of customers um, also wanted to know, well, what's going to happen tomorrow? You guys do such a good job at the three, six-hour forecast. What's going to happen tomorrow at, you know, at my stadium? Because I'm, 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 plan, plan, I'm planning an event tomorrow. And for that, you need numerical weather prediction. And that's why Climacell is invested in, in this division, so we can extend our forecasts you know, beyond the, the, the kind of nowcast um, time frame. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm talking with Dr. Luke Peffers. He's with Climacell. Uh, if you don't know about this company, they, they are sort of a new player on the block and they're doing some really innovative things. I want to talk now about the micro weather product. I mean, there is a pro product that you all are marketing in your company, and you just kind of gave it a, a nice introduction when you were talking about some aspects of the numerical weather prediction side of your business. But tell us even more about micro product, product uh, micro weather, I should say, the micro weather product. Is, what makes it unique? What's its resolution? How often does it update? Uh, what expertise are you bringing to it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so micro weather is um, it, it, it's just that it, 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 it's micro weather and as I was mentioning be, be before that break you know about numerical weather prediction models and even if you go back to our, 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 our original product the current conditions and now casting it's all based on data it's all based on observing what's happening in the atmosphere right now and predicting in the short term with now casting what's going to happen in the future and predicting in the medium term what you know using numerical weather prediction but all of those models require data we have to know what's happening in the atmosphere right now um, and that's that that's one of the you know the, the the fundamental challenges and in in the past decade or so you know we've we, we, we've seen a, a massive increase in the number of observations that we have mostly because of satellite-based data 
Um, before satellites, we relied on what's, what's on the ground. It's really easy to sense the weather on the ground. Um, we have instruments we can, we can lay out across a, a large geographical region and kind of piece together what's happening at the surface. But what's happening at the surface is due to what's happening above the surface. Um, and to sense that, we have balloon soundings you know, across the world that are launched at, at synoptic times, about four times a day. Some areas, they launch them more frequently. And those balloon soundings give us vertical profiles. And vertical profiles across, you know, through the atmosphere's column is so extremely important because then we know the, the stability, the, the makeup of the atmosphere and how it's going to behave at the surface. But of course, if you look at balloon soundings, where they are in the world, mostly over you know, continents, obviously, and they have hundreds of kilometers, if not thousands of kilometers between them. And some continents may not have any, or some, you know, some, some large portions of continents may not have any balloon soundings at all. So we're, we're left with understanding what's happening at the surface and trying to predict the entire column of the atmosphere, how it's going to behave. Because again, that's where our weather comes from. You know, we live in the troposphere, but what the, the stability, the makeup, and the evolution of the troposphere is dependent on everything around it, both horizontally and above. So we, we have to sense the atmosphere. These, these models are initial condition problems. You initialize them, and they'll give you a forecast. If you initialize them with bad data, they'll give you a bad forecast. So when you're talking about micro-weather, it's kind of everything that we've been talking about, everything that's been, been done over the past decade or so, but at a much higher resolution. A lot of people, in, in, in my experience, whether the private companies or in the government, they, they, they believe and they've been convinced that running models at high resolution is micro-weather, and it's not. We, we, we can run our, our models at 10-meter resolution if we want to, but if we're initializing them with a global model or initializing them with you know, estimates of the atmosphere from one balloon sounding or no balloon soundings, you know, j just surface observations, then that model will give you a physically realistic answer. That, that, that's what weather models do. They give you physically realistic answers. But if you didn't initialize them with accurate observations, they're not going to be accurate. They're going to be realistic, but not accurate. And so again, you know, what, the way climate cells sees microweather is sensing data, using the weather of things to get every piece of information we possibly can about the current state of the atmosphere. And with that, we initialize our models. And what, one other piece of climate cell, which makes this, this, this extremely exciting to me, is that we're not just a weather company. We're a weather technology company. And we're, we're trying to address all of these, these aspects of weather, sensing the weather, modeling the weather, and turning that into a product. And we have three offices in three different time zones that are focusing on those three different things. And where, that where, is where, are your, where are your offices? I know you're in Boston. I know you're in Boulder. Where else are you? Tel Aviv. Ah, okay. So we have a group of engineers um, that are mostly focused on the customer-facing products, the Hypercast product and, and the, the, the mobile app product. Those are being developed in, in Tel Aviv. Yes, I, and I, I know uh, many of your colleagues and your founders uh, were uh, sort of from, from that part of the world, too. I've had a chance to meet and talk to some of them. Now, are you? I, I know that in, I, I'm familiar with your company to some degree, and I know you may not be able to answer all of this question given some of your um, trade job, uh, secrets and whatnot. But are you inputting? I know you're inputting all types of data into your model. Uh, probably some of them are fairly traditional weather data that you, you're getting from weather stations and weather underground stations or things like that. And some of them are probably not as traditional as you may think. But is it a true statement that you're leveraging or making use of whatever you can get your hands on? Yes. The, 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 the way we like to say it is if it's affected by weather, we can use it as a weather sensor. And what, what, what's really funny about that is in, in, in my past career, before I even met anybody at Climacell, I, I had this same idea. And I used to tell people, because I was working for the government, and they, they would like to, 
they always had the idea of deploying weather sensors so they could get better weather, which was a good idea, obviously. But in a lot of cases, it's difficult to get weather sensors in deployed regions downrange. Um, so they would come up with these novel ideas. So what if I use this or what if I use that? And I said, well, yes, it, it doesn't matter. If it's affected by weather or if it senses the weather in some way, I can assimilate it. I once told somebody that I could assimilate a potato. And they <laughs> said, well, that's ridiculous. How can you assimilate a potato? And I said, well, think about it. I could put a potato on a stick outside and watch how it decays. Watch how the, the, the peeling of the potato shrivels in the sun or watch how it molds or whatever. And if I did that long enough, I could characterize, I could understand what's causing that. The weather's causing that. The sun's beating on the potato, dehydrating it. There's moisture in the air that's allowing mold to grow on the potato. It wouldn't take that long of a study to figure out what weather elements are affecting that potato. Once we get that, I can de deploy potatoes um, anywhere in the U.S. and use them as weather sensors. That's really now, fascinating. Now, that's not, that's, that's not what climate cells doing. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. That was an idea that I came up with before climate cells. No, Maybe but that's a, that's a brilliant, uh, <laughs> brilliant analogy that you use to illustrate the problem. Sure. Yeah, and that, that's, that's what climate cells doing at a, uh, you know, we're, we're using technology. We're not using produce. We're using connected vehicles. We're using microwave towers. We're using, you know, satellite signals in ways that people aren't using them. And all of that stuff, you know, whether it's communications or cars driving on the road, you know, if, if you look at the microwave towers, it, it, it's a pretty simple problem. The, the, the towers are trying to communicate to each other, and they have to do that through the atmosphere, um, you know, microwave radiation through the atmosphere those signals get attenuated by stuff that's in the atmosphere. And usually what's, what that stuff is, is if, it, if it's not dust or pollution, it's rain, it's rain or fog or drizzle or clouds. And we can back that out and, and understand what's happening between these cell phone towers. And especially in a lot of, lot of developing countries, we have a tremendous amount of these data. If, if, you, if, if you think of them maybe as like a proxy for rain gauges, as an example, if, you know, if, if we're driving rain rate or something or rain accumulation, you plot these around, around these countries and they're just impressive. You could almost map the entire country with these pseudo rain gauges. And now what we do with that data, we can do a lot of stuff. And I'm not going to get into the details of how oh, we sure. use that. Oh, sure. Yeah, I just did ways. Well, yeah. but, but to, just to sort of you know, give you an, an example of what, what Dr. Peffers is talking about with attenuation, for those of you that have DirecTV, for example, or Dish Network or some other satellite TV provider, uh, as I do, I have DirecTV, uh, you might uh, notice at times when it rains, uh, you lose the satellite signal. Uh, you, you might be watching the game. It's not a big problem. It's something that doesn't bother me too much because it doesn't happen that often, but sometimes it does happen. That's an example of attenuation of the satellite signal to your satellite dish on your house by the rainfall. So um, essentially, Climacell, it sounds to me, are, they're using information from all kinds of places that out there are collecting data. Keep in mind, our cars collect data now for on weather, all kinds of things out there that you might not think about that collect data. So, But here's the million dollar question for you, Dr. Peffers. Is there any proof that what you at Climacell is doing is better than the competitors and better than the National Weather Service? Yeah, so this is a very important question. And it's what the way we typically answer this question is we're not trying to replace replace the National Weather Service. They're, they're there to protect lives across the entire country. They, they, and, 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 and people around the world use, use their data, especially the global forecast model. We're not trying to replace the National Weather Service. They are generally focused on weather and how weather affects people and the economy. We are doing the same thing, but at a micro scale, and we're not focusing on the entire 
world. We're focusing on individual people's gaps. And one of the, the easiest things for us to do is fill gaps. And when, when we talk to our customers or when customers come to us, uh, first thing we ask them are, what are your pain points? What are you not getting from the National Weather Service? And it, it's not because the National Weather Service isn't doing an amazing job. They've, they've done a, a wonderful job, and they've developed amazing models and amazing observation systems and satellites. I mean, it, it's, it's tremendous. It's not something a, an individual company can, can just pick up and do. So we're, we're filling gaps. We're, we're finding areas where the, the National Weather Service or other weather providers are falling short. And the fact that there are so many weather companies out there, it means that everybody's falling short. The weather is complex, and it takes a lot of brains, a lot of different agencies working independently and sometimes collaboratively to solve these problems. And that's how we're able to, you know, quote, beat the National Weather Service. But we're not beating them at their own game. We're, we're beating them at our game. We're, we're, we're doing a better job at serving individual customers' needs by filling gaps. And, you know, they're... they're, they're there have been some statements in, in, in the media about, about us and some, you know, h- how we're doing better than, you know, weather comp- or a certain weather company or the National Weather Service. And um, people don't like that sometimes. But really what it comes down to is we're filling gaps. And that's, that's not cheating. It's, it's exactly what we're doing. We're, we're filling gaps. And as, as an example, you know, we, 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 have some, some, it, we have a lot of examples of, of how we're able to fill the gaps. One, one easy-to-understand example is if you think of a radar, uh, uh, NEXRAD Doppler radar, it's, it's scanning a volume of atmosphere you know, around this, this focal point. But it can't look straight, straight horizontally because there's trees and things in the way, so they have to look up a little bit. And the further downrange from the signal um, you get, the, the higher in altitude the radar is actually looking. So when, the, when, when you see a composite image of radar reflectivity, you know, where the rain is occurring, the further you get away from the radar, you're, you have a blind spot under the radar. So the radar knows that there's precipitation happening at an altitude, let's say you know, 2,000 feet or something, 5,000 feet. But what's happening at the surface may not be rain. The rain may be evaporating, or it may just be a large cloud droplet that hasn't condensed, you know, it ha- hasn't, hasn't reached its, its critical mass where it's going to fall out. At the surface, where our microwave um, um, links are, we do see what's happening at the surface. So that's, that's just a simple example of how we, how we fill the gap in terms of how we sense. With our models, we fill the gap by optimizing, customizing. You know, the, the, the weather model we're building is called Climacell's Bespoke Atmospheric Model, CBAM. And bespoke is, is really a key term there. It, it's, it is bespoke. We, we, we deploy these models um, anywhere in the world for customers or for groups of customers. And we're able to optimize these models for things like utilities or severe weather or aviation or icing or UAV weather. Uh, it, the, the, the list goes on and on. And the Weather Service isn't doing that. They, they, they couldn't possibly do that. They, they couldn't possibly address every customer in the world's needs by configuring the model. They have one global forecast model, and obviously they run an ensemble of that to give you some uncertainty, but it's one model, one set of physics. Her, the high-resolution rapid refresh, it's one model, one set of physics, and they can't possibly optimize it for every application, and that's what we're, that's what we're doing. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm talking with Dr. Luke Peffers of Climacell. He is the senior vice president of Climacell, a Boston-based company who is doing really interesting things with the weather. Uh, before that, he spent some time in an, uh, another private venture and also several years uh, serving our country. Thank you for your service with the U.S. Air Force. Uh, I wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned when you talked about that there are others sort of in the weather forecasting and observation and technology game because there are still shortcomings. Are we getting to a point where we're oversaturated? Are there too many players now in the weather game or do you think there's a, there's a piece of the pie for everybody? Yeah, I think there's definitely not too many. Um, you know, if you, you're, you're, you, you have a history with NASA, right? Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm not sure of the number of people that it took to put a person on the moon. I, I don't know how many people, how many companies, whether, you know, government agencies and private companies it took to build those, those shuttles and, and, and payloads. It, it, it takes more than a village. It takes massive amount of people to solve technical problems. And the weather is a technical challenge. It's, it's chaotic. It's difficult. We have equations. The equations aren't perfect. We have models. The models aren't perfect. We have observations. The observations aren't perfect. And all of these companies are trying to solve this problem together, whereas traditionally the government you know, worked on it, just, just like NASA. But of course, you always need the, the, the private sector to, to, to pitch in. The private sector can move more quickly. There's less bureaucracy. Sometimes there's, you know, we, we, we can focus more. We're, sometimes we can, we, we, we can be more innovative just because we can move faster. And that's why I think the private sector is so important, is that we can move quickly. We can do things that the government might not be able to do, not because they're not talented or they don't have the funding, but because things might move more slowly in the government. So that's, that's just one example of why private weather is good. But are there too many? Absolutely not. I, I think it's tremendous that we have so many people trying to solve this problem, and we can all learn from each other. Unfortunately, some of these companies try innovative things, and they fail. And other companies and other government agencies can look at that and, and, and learn from that. Some companies succeed, and the same goes for that. You know, when a company succeeds and does something amazing, it gets the attention of other private companies and other government agencies, and they build upon that. And that's how we, 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 we do it as a team. I, you know, I, we, we certainly have competitors when it comes to generating revenue, but really we're all on the same team. We're all trying to solve a complex problem, and we're all going we're all going to learn from each other. Uh, can can just any regular person watch, listening to this uh, podcast get their hands on your data or your products, or are you essentially just a, a business to business operation at this point? So traditionally, we were we were business to business. So our hypercast product was geared toward you know aviation, airport hubs, airports. Um, stadiums and things like that. But we we started to get so many questions from our, you know, from, from our inbound customers just asking us, like, you know, we, we've heard about climate cell. How can we get our hands on your data? And so one of the, the first tasks that the, that the Tel Aviv engineering team did was to build our, our, our B2C, our business to customer consumer app. So we have that on, on um, iPhone, the app store, and we have a tremendous number of users on that. And we're getting a lot of feedback and a lot of, a lot of great feedback so we can improve that product. Um, and we've recently um, released it on Android. So anybody can download that app for free and start getting micro weather, start getting you know, our, our current conditions and, and now casting. What, what, um, with, with CBAM, you know, it, it's a relatively new model. We've been at it for, for you know, just, just about a year. And we, we certainly do um, um, run that model for a number of customers, mostly for the, for the B2B. We're, we're not running CBAM yet for, for the B2C app. 
But as 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 our customer, our, our B2B customers grow and we start running these models over larger regions and more and more regions, we certainly can do that in the future. But right now, if you go download Climacell on your iPhone or your Android, you can get Climacell's MicroWeather. Well, that's, that's some breaking news for me because I, I don't know that I was aware that you had an app. So um, thank you for uh, letting us know that. Weather Geeks listeners, if you're interested, go find that app on Android or the Apple uh, platform. Final couple of questions here. Uh, clearly there are benefits of the micro weather or the micro scale forecasting that you guys do. Talk to us about, again, you know, summarize what some of those benefits are, but also there have to be some drawbacks too. So talk about the benefits and the drawbacks of going to the scale. Yes. The benefits are, um, as you mentioned, you know, people, when I was studying weather as an undergrad and a graduate student, my friends or my wife's friends would talk to me and they would always make the joke, oh, weatherman, it must be nice because you can be 50% accurate and, you're, and that, that's all we expect of you. And I told them, I said, it's ridiculous, though. If, if, if you're telling me that we failed because it didn't rain in your backyard and the weather service told you that it was going to rain, that's not a failure. It, it did rain in the region. It just didn't happen to rain in your backyard. Yeah, and I exactly. Used to, I, used to, I used to laugh at that and think, why, why would you think that we can do that? But after I studied and after I you know, had my career in the Air Force doing data assimilation, and I realized that it's not as crazy as I thought. It is difficult. It's, it's difficult, but not crazy. And if you, it goes back to my discussion about the weather of things. If, if we're able to sense the weather at a scale that we can resolve an individual thunderstorm, whether it's you know, with observations or a radar or a numerical weather, numerical weather prediction model, we can actually resolve those things. And we can project where they're going to go in, in, in the near and, and midterm. So the, the, the benefits are if we do it accurately, we can truly give minute-by-minute minute updates on things that are happening now and what's going to happen in the near you know, one or two hours. The, the drawbacks are, again, that is difficult. And you know, we're, we're, we're a startup. We're in the process of doing this. We've been at it for three years. We've made great, great progress. But there's room for improvement. There's always room for improvement. If there wasn't, then all weather would be done. Climestyle would have accomplished it, and we're done. But we're not done. There's, there's, there's room for improvement. So the, the drawbacks are that it's, you know, we're, we're not we're, we're never going to be finished improving the models. But we can provide microweather minute-by-minute minute updates, especially where we have sensing equipment. You know, we have microwave links, we have connected vehicles, we have satellite links, we have government data, including radars. We can do a pretty darn good job. And the, the, you know, one of our products, you know, if, if, if you do download the, the Climate Cell app, and you should, you know, the first product you'll see is the now casting of precipitation. And it's, it, it's based on that. It, it, you know, we, we have radars. We have radar data around the world, microwave links. We fuse those together to, to come up with a complete picture of what's happening below the radar scan. And we know what the weather's doing right now. We, we know where the precip is, and we know where, where it's going to go in the short term. Um, the drawbacks. The drawbacks are that sometimes it's difficult to convey, um, especially with numerical weather prediction. With, with, with the now casting, it's a little easier to convey. We, we can tell the customers, this is what's happening right now. And this is what's going to happen in the next few minutes or next couple hours. With numerical weather prediction, it's a little more difficult to tell the model where a thunderstorm is. We can initialize it with you know, stability profiles, you know, pr profiles of temperature, wind, humidity. And the model will know that it's unstable, for instance. And it'll generate thunderstorms. And it'll propagate those thunderstorms in a very complex and realistic way. But the, the placement of those thunderstorms in the model are, are up to the model. The, the model decides based on just, just chaos and, and, and organized convection where a thunderstorm is going to pop up and where it's going to end up. 
uh, numeric weather prediction models have a difficult time with that. And you know, the, the high-resolution rapid refresh so tries to solve that problem, and they, they do a pretty good job at assimilating, bringing in radar data to tell the model where the convection is right now. And then you have to hope that the model is going to hold on to that convection and project it in a, in a meaningful way. But there, there are a lot of problems with that. And the list goes on and on. One of the big challenges I had in the government with, with conveying you know, extremely high-resolution data is that the higher resolution you, you go with a model, whether it's the now casting or the numerical weather prediction model, the higher resolution you go, the more noisy the signal gets. And it's not noise in the way that you think like a, like a microwave attenuation or, or a, a, a microwave signal. It's noise because the atmosphere is noisy. And when you run these models at extremely high resolution, you're, you're explicitly resolving the noise. And the noise is meaningful. Wind gusts are meaningful. Turbulence is meaningful. But a model like the high-resolution rapid refresh is running at three-kilometer resolution. So what that means is that every three-kilometer, a three-by-three-kilometer grid cell, everything's averaged in there. The wind speed is averaged. The temperature is averaged. Everything's averaged. And you parameterize, you account for, indirectly, the effect of things like turbulence and, and wind gusts and stuff like that. So when you start to resolve those, which, which we are doing for a lot of our customers and we are doing in the, in the, the you know, the current conditions layer and the now casting, when you resolve those features, the signals get noisy. And show, explaining that that noise is meaningful, you know, if, if you think of a, of a, of a wind farm again, um, there, there, there's what's called ramping events. So if the winds are going to change, you know, by from 5 meters per second to 15 meters per second in a 10-minute window, they need to know that because that could damage the, the, the turbines. And if you look at something like HRRR output, everything, the, the wind speed looks kind of smooth during a, you know, like a, a six-hour period. But you look at our model, and it, it's extremely noisy. And again, c conveying that noise in a way that they don't perceive it as noise, that's a challenge. Yeah, no, and that, I think you just did an excellent job of kind of giving an overview of the sort of potential there in, in this sort of micro-weather approach, but certainly uh, why it's uh, certainly not something that has not has been cracked on this yet. It's a, it's a hard problem, and it's a problem that you're suggesting, at least, is within reach. Final few seconds here, Luke. Uh, what's next for you at Climacell? I mean, I, I know some things you, we probably shouldn't talk about at this point. I know you have some business such uh, uh, things that you want to keep close to hand, but just anything publicly that uh, where are you going next? Yeah, um, where we're going next is hard to say. Um, a year ago, Climacell didn't have an NWP division in Boulder, and they didn't have an engineering division in Tel Aviv. Now they do. Um, whether all that was planned, not entirely sure. I don't, I don't think it was planned. I, I think we go where the innovation is. We, we, we try things out, and things that work and, th and things that show promise, we go in that direction. And as, as I mentioned, our, our core products, they're not done. You know, there's so much improvement that we can do. There's so much science out there. There's so much artificial intelligence, machine learning, and other data types that we can get and put in, into these models. There's so much more we can do to improve what we have now. And really, you know, what, what it comes down to is when customers ask us for a capability that we don't have, we, uh, uh, a light bulb goes off. If 20 customers are asking us for the same capability, we put that on our roadmap and we just do it. Our customers are dictating what we do, I, I, I think is, is, is maybe a good way to put it. The more requests we get for a certain technology or the more requests for an improvement of a technology we get, we lock it in our roadmap and we just, we just simply do it. And nice. we kind of let, let that gauge where we're going. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you again on Weather Geeks. And um, if, if you're interested in some of the things that uh, you've heard talked about today, wh where can people find you on, on the Internet or social media? Yeah, just go to Climacell. Um, 
www.thisisfun.com. On, uh, you know, we have a nice website, a lot, lot of information there. We're on Facebook. We're on um, a lot of our folks are on LinkedIn. You can you can look at look, look us up. Our, um, we have a customer success team that's always eager to hear from customers or prospective customers or people that are just are just interested in climate cell. So yeah, definitely reach out to us. Well, that's a, it's been an interesting discussion uh, on micro weather forecasting down to the raindrop. We've been talking with Dr. Luke Peffers of Climate Cell. Luke, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you, Dr. Shepard. It was an absolute pleasure. I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. As always, to the listeners out there, I just want to take a moment here to thank you all. I know you're listening in and you know, our, our listenership is growing and we really appreciate every uh, one of you. I hope we challenge you. I hope you're learning from the podcast and, and, and enjoying it and geeking out like I am. We'll talk to you the next time on the Weather Geeks podcast.